Moving right along within the series we've been in in Godonomics, we're looking at what God has to say about money. And, and in doing so, we've been looking at true economics, not as an individual, but as a nation and the type of system that we're in. And so in doing this, as we've said before, I don't care what the subject is. I want to know what God says on it. Any subject, we, we discuss things all the time. We, you know, theological discussion. We've been discussing healing. And one of the questions is, is it God's will to heal everybody? And from Scripture, it's so clear that it is. And there are lots of things that we can look at in those regards. Say, okay, what does God say on the matter versus what do people say? Because if the two don't line up, well, we should lean towards God's side. And when I say lean, we should just go there. We shouldn't just lean. We should run with it. And, but we don't. We, we come up with all of these ideas that sound good on paper. And they don't always work out in practice. And there's a reason for that is because the way God has laid things out tends to work better since he's the guy that kind of created everything. You know, it, it, it would be like arguing with Henry Ford on how to make a motor. I think the guy knows what he's doing. And so when we look at this and the principles inside of, of God's economic system, we see these three things that are true. We see that we have liberty, we have the opportunity for a prosperity, and we should be uber generous. You see, there were not people that were just poor. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they did not flee with nothing. They fleed with a lot. Abraham was a wealthy man. Many of these guys were in extreme prosperity, and with that, we're also extremely generous. We have the freedom to choose what we do when it comes to finances, what we do with our money. We have the freedom to spend it how we want. We have the freedom to invest it how we want. We have the freedom to light it on fire if we want. I mean, we can do whatever we want because it is ours. We see that principle truly laid out in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. When they sold the land and all these people were coming together, it was the early, early stages of the church. And there was communal living and they would bring the money that from selling of the goods to the apostles. And then if somebody had a, had a need, because there was intense persecution going on. We act like the church was born and everybody was just like, oh, that's awesome. Well, come on in. You guys just live in peace and harmony. We won't bother you. That is not what happened. I mean, these people were being killed for their faith. Remember Saul slash Paul? He was on a mission to destroy everybody in the church. So this communal living was happening because it had to. Not necessarily because they wanted to. And so they were selling their goods, and they were bringing them to the apostles. And then if somebody was in lack and needed something, the, uh, the apostles had the finances in order to help them. And it was out of a spirit of generosity that people were doing this. There was no commandment. Peter didn't say, listen, this is what I need you to do. I need you to go sell all your stuff and bring me the money. You know who do that? Cults. Right? We had one just down the road from us, you know, back in the 80s, for those of you that remember. There's a book written about it called Evil Harvest over there in, in Rulo, Nebraska. Good times. Good times. We just moved to Nebraska right when that thing was kind of going down, and I do remember it. So I was a young man, but anyway. And so they had the freedom to do with it what they wanted. And so when Ananias and Sapphira, they sold the land, but they kept a part back to it, and they went and told the apostles that they brought everything. And Peter scolded them. He's like, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? When you owned the land, was it not yours to do with what you wanted? And when you sold it, was the money not yours to do with what you wanted? You could have brought a portion and say, I didn't bring it all, I kept some back for me. It would have been perfectly acceptable. But they didn't do that. They lied, and thus they were judged for it. You see, we have that freedom. 
of, of to do with it what we want. No different. When we give every Sunday, when those of you guys that come in and you give every Sunday, we have absolute freedom in doing so. There's a reason you should, and there is a principle behind it. And we will be getting to that, but we're not there yet. But it doesn't mean we have to. We have the choice. And so in that leads to prosperity, and from that prosperity leads to generosity. And so out of that, we've looked at the three big systems that we look in economics. Capitalism, socialism, and communism. Let's read these, these definitions. This will be the last time we do this. But the capitalism is an economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit rather than by the state. Capitalism is an economic system which largely allows markets to allocate scarce resources through prices, property rights, and profit and loss signals. This is the system in which we operate here in the United States. It's called a market system where the market dictates the price. Now, we do not operate under a true market system anymore, but there was a point in time in which we did. The scarcity of something makes the value of it go up, and there, but we also have government interference and stuff that controls pricing on certain things. And so um, we don't operate under a true capitalist system any longer, but the overall and overarching principle here is that if you buy a piece of property, it is yours, and the government cannot just come and seize it from you. And that is thanks to our Constitution. And that is thanks to the fact that our founding fathers were God-fearing men that knew property rights were the pursuit of happiness. It was one and the same. And then we look at socialism. Socialism is a political and economic theory of social organization that advocates that the means of production, dis distribution, and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. Socialism is a system under which the government owns the means of production and through coercive taxation and wealth redistribu redistribution allocates resources and makes decisions over property, prices, and production. So in other words, you no longer own the rights to all that is yours. You may go in, uh, and how they do this primarily is through taxation. So there is a heavy taxation in which you may own earn a dollar, but 80% of that dollar is given to the government. You're allowed to keep the 20 to try to live off of that, but all of it goes into this big pool, and then the government redistributes it as they see fit. Not as you need, it's as they say they see fit. They say it's as you need, but that's really not the case. Now, some people in here have grown up in foreign countries and have seen different economic systems. When we talk about El Salvador and stuff, there, there's basically the haves, which is a small portion of it, and the have-nots. And all of that is, is because of government regulation. I think you were telling me that the U.S. sent $750 million down to help fight the gangs a few years ago, and less than 10% of that actually went to help the people. It all got squandered by the government down there because it is corrupt. What do they do about it down there? There's not much they can do about it down there. It will ultimately lead to a war if they try to overthrow the government. You see in Venezuela, we talked about that last week, in Venezuela right now, that they are, there are people starving to death. The leaders are not, but there are people starving to death because it has left the socialism and has gone more towards communism, which is what the next step is. Here's the definition of communism. It's a political theory derived by Karl Marx advocating class war and leading to a society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. It's a progression from socialism and it's political and economic system which would abolish private property and give to individuals based on need. You cannot separate these two because one will lead to the other. And so the problem we have in this is this goes against the very principles that are laid out in Scripture, that we have freedom and that we can be prosperous and that through that we can be generous because you cannot be prosperous as an individual underneath the system because it is taken from you. The second that one begins to get ahead, they go, saw that video last week where, 
where they, the leader of Venezuela, his name's slipping my mind right at the moment, but they said, well, is that building? We owned it by the government. And he, they said, no, that's a private business. And he says, expropriate it. In other words, take it. It's now the government's. And they can do that. That is why you see real estate investors struggle to, with the ideas of real estate in other countries because they do not have the same protections that they have here in the U.S. where the government cannot just come in and take your property on a whim. And you see that in other places. You see, the idea here is that if we simply follow the system in which God has clearly laid out, and I'm not saying God laid out capitalism. I am saying capitalism is the result of godly principles. I know there's a big uproar about that, and that's not a politically correct thing to say, but when we're taking away individual freedom, then we are going against the heart of God. That would be no different than, than the government coming and said, okay, everybody in this country is going to be Christians now. And I don't care what you believed before, but now you have to believe in Christianity, and you will be a Christian whether you like it or not. Does that go against the principles of God? Absolutely it does. Because now you no longer have the freedom to choose or reject God. It is forced on you. And even in that, you might go through the motions in attending a Christian church, but that does not make you a Christian. And we've seen that happen in the past. We've seen governments who have risen up and said, okay, now we are going to be this. We're going to be this orthodoxy. We're going to be whatever. The fact is, is that this country was founded on the idea of religious freedom because the pilgrims, when they escaped, they left England, went up to Holland trying to find religious liberty because they did not agree with the Church of England, rightfully so. And from there, they left and went to the United States all in an effort. This is the sole purpose of it, was to find religious freedom. Because the thing we need to understand is that religion isn't just a system. It is something that is so ingrained in us. It is who we are when we call ourselves Christians. We are no longer our own, but we are His. And that is why those principles matter. And that is why they left. So, we see the three big systems here, and we see how they have operated in other countries. This isn't a history lesson. We're not going to go through all of that. But what do we have going on here? Well, I introduced you to this man last week, John Keynes. Okay? He was Time Magazine's cover here. He is the one that you've heard the term called Keynesian economics. Now, when we see Godonomics, we see this principle right here, this flow chart that I put together for you, that we have the ability to produce something. From there, we form a profit, and out of that profit, we have savings. And from our savings, we give, we invest, and we spend. In other words, is that as we reinvest that money, we are increasing our ability to produce more, thus increasing our ability to profit more, thus increasing our ability to give, invest more, and spend more. It's kind of like if you have a, a job and they give you a raise, suddenly you have more money to do something with. You have to determine, what am I going to do with that? Here in the U.S., we have a consumer economy where we typically just spend it. Somebody gets their tax return, hey, I should really set that aside for a rainy day. Oh, nope, want a new TV. That's just how we roll. I know people who live tax return to tax return. So this is the way that God would have it up, but John Keynes has a different way. This is the flow chart for him. We got Godonomics. But then we've got Keynesian economics. It's all based off of debt. And the, the root of it, and he wanted to destroy capitalism, but the root of it was that if I am in debt to a country for a small amount, then I am their slave. Remember the Bible says the borrower is slave to the lender. But if I owe them a ton of money, they have no choice but to continue to loan me money because if they stop, it will hurt their economy. We use China as an example. We borrow money from China every day. And what do we do with that money? We buy products from China. So if we don't have the money to buy the products from China, then their production is going to go down. Thus, they loan us more money. 
That's Keynesian economics. This is the system that we are in right now. It has affected all political leaders for, for the last, I don't know how many years since this thing has come up. Because in it, we tax the producers, and we come up here, and we're borrowing essentially what it is. It leads to inflation, and thus we have a consumer economy. We no longer produce things, we consume things. This is Google it, you'll find this stuff out. And so when we look at these ideas and these principles, it's like, okay, well, what do we as individuals do about it? What can we do about it? Well, I've got a little video I want to show you guys that really puts the governmental system in a nutshell. Go ahead. Now that tune will be stuck in your head all day. But here's the thing. There's so much truth to that. That's a, a comedian. His name is Tim Hawkins. He's hilarious. If you've never heard him, you need to go see him. He's, he's, he's very funny. But, uh, but that's, that's kind of the principle here. And this is Keynesian economics. This is the idea that the government produces something. What can the government promise you that does not come from an individual? Nothing. 
because the government produces no income. It, income is based off of taxation. Thus, it must take from you to give to somebody else. Is that godly? No. Not at all. In fact, when they talk about like social reform and they're talking about, well, we need to take care of the poor people, whose job is that? It's the church. It is not the government. Because forcing people to give to that is against the godly principles. We should desire to do that. When you see a homeless guy sitting on the street, how many of you guys, being honest, sit there and think, I'm not giving to them because I don't know what they're going to do with that money. Because I'm there. I get it. And I've seen people take advantage of that. I, I, I remember watching a guy who was in Chicago uh, one time, and the guy climbs out of the back of this van, walks to the back, grabs his wheelchair, puts it down, sits in it, wheels around the corner with the sign asking for money. Seen it happen. I've watched guys that got money and then they head right to the liquor store. Here's the truth. It's not our problem. Because what if they really are in need? What if they're not illegit? You know, the thing is, guys, is that we, 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 we judge the motives before we even know. And, and so I try to be careful not to do that. It's not always easy. And I, I get that. You see, the idea of Keynesian economics is we are going to keep borrowing and borrowing. In fact, look at this flowchart here. Not this flowchart, but yeah, here we go. So what happens is, is, because it's all based off of GDP, they have this new law that comes out and they're calling for spending by the government. And what happens is they run out of money. Does government ever run out of money? Oh yeah, and what do they do? Oh, then we have to increase the budget deficit. You know, they, they go into this thing. So Federal Reserve prints additional money for the Treasury. Why do they do that? And how can they do that? Because our money is only backed on the good faith of the government. It's not backed by any tangible asset. So public debt is then increased and additional dollars enter into the economy. That's a great thing, right? There's more money flowing into the economy, thus we can be in good shape. From here, larger money supply is de uh, and decreases the value of the dollar because now the dollar is worth less because there's more of them in there. Remember that what something is worth is based off its scarcity. The GDP is increased because of the new money in the economy because that's how they base their debt levels because they have to be at 50 to 70 percent uh, of debt of GDP based off of Keynesian economics. So thus the GDP is now raised because it's a lower percentage of debt because there's more money in there and then they rinse and they repeat. They do it all over again. This should bother us. It really should bother us because you don't get to do that at home, right? Neither do I. At some point... We have to act our wage. We have to live within our means. The only ones who don't are the government. And we should be electing people that want to follow, throw out the godly aspect of it. How about common sense? Because it's the only place in the world where you can have a $100 bill and spend $125 and it be out of the problem. How do you do that? Only they can I mean, think about it. When they rolled out Obamacare, what did they do? They excluded themselves from it. How is that not bothering people? Because it's like, oh, they're up here, and then we're down here. Again, that's not God's principles. That is not the way the Constitution was set up. These people serve at the will of the people. So what do we do about it? That's the question. Because we cannot control what system our government is in. But we can control who's in the government. Right? We have freedoms here. We have the freedom to choose. There's elections coming up. And that, my friends, is what we're getting into today because we are ultimately responsible for it. I had a good friend of mine that sat on a, uh, a trustee board which has handled the finances of a church. And he, he, he didn't like how the church handled their finances. They weren't 
they weren't following godly principles. They weren't doing things. They weren't doing anything dishonest or illegal. They just really were not being good stewards with it. And it bothered him. And uh, he said, just to the point where he had a tr- trouble giving to his own church, which to me is like, if you struggle with that, you're probably in the wrong church. But be that as it may. And so he was on the trustee board. The trustee board made the financial decisions. And he never voiced up. And I'm like, you're part of the problem. Because if you can't man up and say, no, I don't think we can do this, you might get outvoted. You can't control that. But you are just as much responsible. So who is responsible for this government deficit and this spending? We are. Because we do not do our homework and look into these people and say, okay, what are they truly going to do? We can't control what they do when they get there. But if they don't do what they promise, we need to vote them out and get somebody who else will. So where do these ideas come from? The fact that we have these elections, these actually come out of biblical principles. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 18 today. And in verse 1. Now this is after the Israelites have left Egypt. And they're out there wandering. And remember, Moses is the mediator between man and God. He is the one that is, is the people come to. He is a judge. They come to him with questions. He answers it all. So here in verse 1, it says, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, so you know who Jethro is, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back. And with their two sons, um, their two sons of whom the name was one Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eleazar, For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came in with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, "Because Blessed be the Lord, for he has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they have behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering, another sacrifice to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. There we go. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. And so when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. And so Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the law, and show them the way in which they must walk, and, what, and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, be, hating covetousness, 
and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifty, and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times, then it will be that every great matter that they shall bring to you, but every matter, every small matter they themselves shall judge, so it will be easier for you, for they will bear your burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. You see, this here, folks, is the principle of which our Constitution was set up of elected officials, that you have rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. That word rulers, don't let that throw you off. This is not a kingly ruler. These are people that would go to these individuals looking for direction from God because it was a theocracy. God is the king at this point. You see, later, when they demand for themselves a king, and God warns us, listen, he's going to take your children, he's going to take your land, he's going to tax you on everything. If you do this, you're better off this way, but if that's what you want, I'll let you do it. And so you see here is that Moses trying to do everything himself, his father-in-law bringing him some wisdom, saying, listen, you can't do this all on your own. You can't sit here all day, every single day, and let people come to you. So you need to set this up. And so he chose these leaders. But the key here is what they had to do that you had to select people who feared God, that they were men of truth, and they hated covetousness. Now, what is covetousness? It is the desire of things that you don't have, and you want them from somebody else. Does that sound like socialism? Absolutely. That person over there has too much, so let's take from him, and we'll give it to somebody else. Why do we care how much they have? We act as if somebody who has done well did it on the backs of those who are poor. Is that by there's a limited supply, and thus by you taking that part, there's not enough over here. There are some places that that may be true. And there are cases of that being true in the United States. There are people who do dishonest things. They're evil men. They, they take advantage of people, and they're greedy. But the beautiful idea of a market system is that when a person begins to act like that, all we have to do is stop buying from them and take our money elsewhere. And then that will solve the problem because they won't be in business. We see this all the time. We see businesses go out of business all the time. Some of it has to do with um, just simple change in the way people behave, their shopping habits. I mean, you guys remember the online boom? how it was killing mom and pop stores. Do you guys remember a time where Walmart, every town that had a Walmart killed every grocery store that was there? It was the kiss of death. And now what do you see? Grocery stores popping up around Walmarts all the time because people's habits began to change and now they're looking for different things and it'll cycle itself again. Here it is that they chose for themselves leaders who feared God, loved truth, and hated covetousness. Do we see a lot of truth in politics today? Oh my goodness, no. There was just an undercover video that came out from our own senator here with Claire McCaskill. And you can think about her what you want, but I'm of the belief that if an individual is going to stand on some platform, uh, whatever it is that you believe in, just be honest and say, this is what I believe, and if you agree with me, vote me in. And if you disagree with me, don't vote me in. And they got undercover with, the, with their, uh, their campaign talking about how they're essentially lying to the people trying to get elected. They'll tell them this because they're trying to go to the more moderate voters who are pro-life and pro-Second Amendment. Okay? Why not just tell the truth? Stand on for what you believe. But no, we don't do that. We'll lie to get elected because it is very lucrative for an individual to get in there because there's a lot of money changing hands. This is part of the problem. 
And thus, we as individuals should look at this and say, this ain't right. These are not people who fear God. These are not people who care about truth. And they certainly are hating covetousness because we all know what somebody else has. Look at Proverbs 29 too. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. Think about this. We have the ability to choose our leaders. And we should have a standard that, sh- that must be met. And yet we don't. What do we vote with? Who's going to put the most money in our pocket? We care less about character than we do our checkbook. And that's not right. Look at Proverbs 28, 15. A wicked ruler is as dangerous to the poor as a roaring lion or an attacking bear. You see, who really gets hurt are people who are poor. Now, poor people in this country are richer than most of the world because we have more afforded to them and there's more things available to them. But when somebody gets in there and they make all of these promises and they say, okay, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to hand you this. You saw that video. You want free health care? You know, free mortgages? What do we hear from these guys? Oh, I'm going to give you this. How can they do that when it's not theirs to give? In order to give it to you, any promise made, it must come from somebody else. And when a leader stands up and says, I'm going to give you this, your mind should immediately go to mammon. The Assyrian God of finance is saying, and we see it in Matthew 4 when Jesus is tempted, and he says, listen, if you'll bow down to me, everything you see, all the kingdoms of the world, I will give you. Jesus didn't fall for it, but we do it all the time. Well, he promises he's going to do this. He's going to take care of us. I don't want them to take care of us. I want the government out of the way. We need government. Don't misunderstand me. But they should not be dictating as if they are the kings and God himself ruling over our lives. And thus, we should vote for people who stand up on godly principles. They don't always have to be Christian. Because if we waited for only Christians to run, we'll be waiting a long time. But they should stand on truth and hate covetousness. And at a minimum, have a fear of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob their fatherless. I mean, guys, we have these individuals that go up and they are doing things that are evil. I'm not uber political. I am independent. I really don't ascribe to any party. But I can't stand lies. I can't stand stealing. I can't stand cheating. And I certainly hate that we kill our children in this country. I hate it. You know why I hate it? Because God hates it. Because if we're created in the image of God, so are they. And they have the same rights. And if you didn't know this, I'm going to tell you now, that abortion was an issue back with the founding fathers of this country. In fact, it was against the law that the second a woman knew that she was with child, if she did anything to harm that child, she would face capital punishment for the death of that child. They didn't have the technology that we have today. But once she knew, she was responsible for that life. So this isn't a new subject. This has been going on in this country for hundreds of years and around the world since its inception. Because we used to sacrifice children. To Moloch. There's a reason I hate that. And there's a reason that I will not vote for somebody. I will not vote for a dog catcher that is pro-choice. I won't. Because I, I, they may have further aspirations down the political road. 
Guys, we have to wake up. We have the rights here to choose leaders for ourselves, and we have to do it. We can't control the economic system, but the economic system will never change if we don't choose godly leaders who love truth and hate covetousness. We have to hold our leaders accountable. Choosing for ourselves God-fearing people that respect the way that God wants things done. Or do we just blindly follow? What do we do? In this country, we blindly follow. We just stand up and we're like, oh yeah, they're in my party, therefore I'm going to vote for them. That's ignorance. That should never happen. Because I don't care who they feel like. You know they can change that and often do. You realize that once the public perception of some issue changes, that politicians, oh, you know, I think I've changed my mind on that. I'm going to go this way now. That tells me that you either never believed it to begin with, or more than likely, you're just starting to stay in power, and there's a reason for that. You see, we have the ability to choose for ourselves godly leaders, and so we don't just blindly follow. Oh, but what about Romans 13? Romans 13 tells us that we must obey the government because it was instilled by God. When gay marriage was approved, that was, I heard so many Christians say, well, we just got to go with the flow here. We just got to do that because that's what, what Romans 13 says. Well, let's look at this. It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authority. See, there you go. Every soul. We got to be subject to the governing authorities. This is Paul writing. Paul knew what he was talking about. He wrote most of the New Testament. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Enough said, right? We just go along with whatever it is. We don't cause an uproar. We just go along with it because Romans 13 says so. Or does it? Let's keep going. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of, the, of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now think about this. Let me ask you this question. It says we, we submit ourselves to them for what is good, because they are God's minister of justice for those who practice evil. Who determines what is good? It's God. When they are doing the government as a whole, are promoting what is evil in God's sight, do we just blindly follow? No, because now they're not doing their part. We do our part by putting them there. And the second they get out of line, we should demand that they be removed by voting somebody else in. And sometimes as somebody else is us. Because we need godly people on the school board, and we need godly people running for mayor. And I'm not saying we don't have a godly mayor. He's a great guy. I love the guy. I'm not just saying that because you're here. I'm not, I swear. I love your dad. He's awesome. But I'm saying we need godly people in all of these roles because they impact our lives in, in a very profound way. We need God-fearing people here. You see, we don't just blindly follow. We stand up for truth. We fear God and we hate covetousness. And we should expect the same thing for these people that we elect. We should not just vote for them because they happen to match our political party. That is nonsense. 
It's kind of like the big thing, like, we need a woman president. It's about time. Why is it about time? I have no problem with a woman being president, but just because she's a woman doesn't make her qualified. Can we all agree that we have had unqualified male presidents? Some of you are thinking, like, yeah, he's there now. Not in this group, right? No. But, I mean, but, I mean we've had people up there like, really? You know, it, it, it's fearing God is the key to everything. You see, this government as a whole is established by God. He appoints whom he wants. You see it in the Old Testament as well. But it's for the good of the people against those who practice evil. See, the whole thing here is corporal punishment. In other words, if you murder somebody, you face the death sentence. And that is completely godly. And so, do we just blindly follow? Well, it says, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Should we honor these people? Absolutely. Should we fear them? We should respect them. Not fear as if we're afraid. Customs, we know what customs are and we know what taxes are. You see, there's a reason. It's set up, we pay our taxes. Should we just not pay our taxes because we don't like it? No. We should change the system. If we don't want income tax, we should get people in there that don't believe in income tax. So, we have to see this from God's perspective. Okay, so what, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God. Therefore, we just give over to him, and we just do it, and we just go with it, right? Isn't that what that says? You guys know I'm setting you up here, because it's not what that says. Guys, you guys are catching on so fast. We're going to go look at Matthew 22, and I'm going to show you exactly what's going on there. It's all right if I teach you guys something today. Is it all right if, if we just get into the Word and look at what's going on here? Because there's more here than meets the eye, and there always is. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 22. Let's start in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Remember, this is Jesus is the him, and the Pharisees are always against him, and he's been teaching. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you are not regard to the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or to not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, It's Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. See? Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. I've heard people use this verse to tell us the separation of church and state. You see, you got government and you got the church. Why doesn't that work? There is no church here. The church wasn't created yet. We don't see that till Acts chapter 2, so it can't be what's going on. The other thing here is that you've got these guys conspiring against Jesus, and then all of a sudden he says this one thing, and they marveled, and they left him and went their way. In Luke, it talks about they were astounded by his teaching. And yet, here they are. What was so marvelous about this saying? Well, that should always be something that pops up to you. It's like, there's more here than meets the eye. So let's break this down. First of all, who on earth are the Herodians? Right? It's not a term we know. We don't often see them. We see the Sadducees and the Pharisees primarily in the Bible. The Herodians were a group of individuals that were associated, and they were very loyal to the Tetrarch of Herod Antipas. And he was the, uh, under Roman support. He ruled over Galilee from about 4 B.C. till about AD 39. Now, Pilate had risen to power at this point, and they wanted the Herods back up there. They were very loyal to him. 
But this was a minority position because many people were not loyal. This is a small faction here. Herod Antipas is the guy that uh, put John the Baptist in prison. Now, you'll see the Herodians, they always appear with the Pharisee, which is an odd um, group because they believe different things. See, the Pharisees were the legalists. They believed down to the letter of the law, both the, the, the Talmud and both the teachings of the rabbis and what had become culturally acceptable. But what they were opposed to was Hellenism, which was the Greek influence. They're blending Greek ideas with Jewish ideas. It was called the Hellenistic Jews or things like that. You saw it further north up in the Jewish area. And so they were completely against that. And the Herodians were basically all that. They were very Hellenistic. And so they adopted these ideas. And so the Herodians were not strict followers of the law where the Pharisees were. So here you've got kind of a, a, well, this is the way God set it up, and they were correct. And then you've got the Herodians like, yeah, I know he said that, but we, you know, we can mix some of this stuff in. They're opposing views. But what this shows us is they had a common enemy. And that enemy was Jesus. They wanted him gone. They wanted him out of the way. He was interfering with both of what they wanted. And so what is going on here? Well, let's look at the verse again. So the Pharisees went and they plotted with him. They bring the Herodians and they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or to not? Now why are they doing this? Because if he says no, then he's not loyal to Rome and they can arrest him based off of that. But if he says yes, he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah was coming to overthrow the government and set up a time of peace in Jerusalem. At least that's what they believed at the time. Remember, they were not looking for the suffering servant that Jesus was coming to first die. They were thinking he was coming to set up his kingdom. He's coming back to do that, but he's not doing it yet. So no matter how he answers this question, he's in trouble with somebody. So what does he say? He gets on him like, you hypocrites. And what is a hypocrite? One who appears as one thing, but underneath is truly something else. You see, they appeared as if they were looking for information. Well, what do we do here, Jesus? We just don't understand. They were setting him up. He says, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. He says, whose image and description is this? He said, it's Caesar. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And then they marveled, and they left him. They didn't know what to do with this. So what's happened? Why are they marveling? Why was this a sufficient answer? Why was this acceptable? Well, let's look at what a denarius is. This is a denarius, okay? This is the actual denarius that was used around the time of Christ. They find these things all over the place. And what you have here is you've got an image on it. He said whose image is on it and whose inscription is on it. Well, the image is Tiberius Caesar, the son of Caesar Augustus. On it, the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the back, you have seated, this is Pax, okay? It was the Roman goddess of peace. And the Latin phrase that would be used on this says high priest on it. Okay, no big deal. Now, here's a question. Was it acceptable under Jewish law to have the image of a false god? It was not. Let's look at this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. It says, You should not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, that is in the water or under the earth. You should not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
Okay, this is just one of many verses that are there. They have the image. This Caesar was not just Caesar. Caesar was not just a ruler. He was divine. He was a God. When he said, show me a denarius, how can they show him one if they did not possess one? You see, a Jew following the law would never have a denarius. Shekel was the, the income of the day. A, a denarius was a day's wage. And it was required to pay taxes in denarius. But a Jew strictly following the commandments of the law would never have this here. And so they, by pulling that out, admitted to Jesus, I am not following the commandments of God. By having that, because it was a sin. So what did Jesus say? You give to your God what is rightfully his. We'll give to the real God, what rightfully belongs to him. It's not a commandment to just go pay taxes. You see, Jesus was setting them up because they were wrong in what they were doing. They were trying to get him in trouble. And so by doing it, they used the law against him. This is what Jesus did. That's what's going on here. This isn't just blindly, oh, we just blindly follow the government. We just do what it says. No, we have the ability to affect change. We work within the confines of the systems that we're given, but we should always be striving to bring individuals in that follow the principles of God. Now look at this in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the last verse. I'm going to wrap this up. It says, Therefore I exert, first of all, supp that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. You see, we pray for those, and we make intercession for those as kings and all who are in authority. Why do we do it? Because we should be able to worship God the way God has instructed us to do it. And when somebody comes in and telling us, well, you can't do that, or that you keep your faith, in, and you have that in church or in your home, but out in the public square, you don't, you don't believe like that. We go with what the government says. If they are not enacting laws that are good, in the eyes of God, then we need to get them out. And it is our responsibility to do so. You guys, we have been afforded a freedom in this country based off of founding fathers who feared God, loved truth, and hated covetousness. And because of that, we have the freedoms afforded to us to live peaceably. Every day, there's a Christian somewhere in the world that is killed for their faith. And we take it for granted. There was a, a, a pastor... Andrew Brunson just got back from Turkey. He'd been a minister in Turkey for years, in prison for years for his faith. And thanks to the ACLJ and, and, and even President Trump had a part to play in that, he has just been released. But the only reason he was there is because he was preaching Christianity in a Muslim world. And they hated him for it. You see, it's, it's up to us. We can't just complain about it. Well, that's not fair. That's not right. We have to do something about it. Guys, we've got an election coming up. It's a midterm election. We should take it seriously. We should look at the issues that are going on. We should look at the individuals and the character of the individuals. Not just believe the commercials. The commercials that they put out to tell you how great they are and that their opponent puts out to tell you how terrible they are. Because that's propaganda. But look at their voting record if they've been in. Look at what they've done in the past. Are they fearing God, loving truth, and hating covetousness? And I know what you're thinking. They're probably not loving truth because they're running for Congress. You can't be in Congress and love truth. They're lying because their mouth's moving. 
But the reality is, guys, is that we have a part to play in this, and we have to do our part here. And the reason we do it is that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives to worship God how God has told us to, and that we can share the truth without fear of retribution from the government. The government is an entity that was established by God for the good of people. And we need to not take that for granted, and we need to stand up and do what is right in the eyes of God.